Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast. Hello, it's Wednesday, April the 19th, and you're very welcome to the latest instalment of the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and with me in studio today are political editor Pat Leahy, and I am also delighted to welcome Mary Minahan back to the premises. How long has it been, Mary? Oh, uh, it's been 11 months. So nothing much has happened since you've been away. Uh, there have been a few bits and bobs, I think, haven't there? Yeah, well, Britain is the process of leaving the European Union. Donald Trump was elected president. We have a new editor of the Irish Times. And indeed, we have the new political editor of the Irish Times, are relatively recently appointed. Wait, to my left. Uh, true, but Mary's just had her second baby, so the upheavals in her life have been considerably <laughs> more uh, dramatic, I can imagine. I think, I, I think that's true. But anyway, you're very welcome back. And speaking of upheavals, uh, we were all upheaved a little bit yesterday with the, uh, when we got wind that there was going to be a special announcement uh, outside 10 Downing Street and Theresa May strode up to the podium, Mary, and yep. uh, told us that she was going to call a snap election. Indeed she did. Uh, I suppose it was politics in its, its purest forms and I think one weapon that all powerful people possess, uh, even people whose power is diminishing somewhat as or dwindling as Enda Kenny has shown us, is, is the element of surprise and she certainly wielded that weapon with great effect yesterday. Yesterday, although you could certainly have some concern about the secrecy with which she she uh, she held this so tight. I think I heard Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, last night saying that she learned about this just yesterday morning. So you might be a little bit worried about how how tight Theresa May has doesn't to keep that. To be, doesn't have to be that probably way. Probably does have to be that way, given given her own party, I suppose. So. What's going to happen here? I, I mean, she has really talk about being on a sticky wicket for the Labour Party, as our English friends would say. I mean, they are in an absolutely awful position. I suppose on the upside, they could come out of this process uh, with a more credible leader in place. But I suppose Theresa May has factored that in. She's not too worried about that, given her age and stage in politics. She she can sort of see that off, she thinks. And, you know, the Labour Party, not to focus on them too much, but I suppose they have to be looking into their hearts now and thinking, you know, do we have a right to exist at all? Because I I cannot see a situation uh, in which they come out of this uh, election really any better. But what Theresa May uh, is focusing on, I suppose, within her own party is that if she gets this big majority that she's hoping for, then she won't be dependent on these ultra Brexiteers, if you want to call them that. And she, she just will be able to wield more power both at home and abroad, if you like. And there's some, some debate about, about whether that would be the case. And we'll be, we'll be delving into that a little bit later when we're joined by Professor Tim Bale, who is a pretty good steer and all this stuff. But Pat, listening to what Mary's saying and taking into account hindsight bias is a marvellous thing. Everybody can pivot very quickly from, you know, at nine o'clock yesterday morning, I heard some of the great and good on these very premises saying there was no <laughs> question at all that a, that, that a general election uh, would, would be called by Theresa May. And by yesterday afternoon, everybody was agreeing it was a very smart, uh, very smart political move. What does it, is there any possibility at all that in five or six weeks time, people will be turning around and saying what a disastrous, politically uh, inept move it was? 
when we actually have the results of the election? Yes, yes, there is uh, a chance. And if there's one thing that the politics and particularly the electoral events of the last 18 months have taught us here and around the world, it's that we should beware the conventional wisdom, that we should beware the uh, inevitability, uh, inevitabilities such as the UK would never vote to leave the European Union. Sure, that would be just mad, Ted. Uh, The inevitability that Donald Trump could not first get the Republican nomination and then certainly could not win the American presidential election. So uh, I think a degree of humility on the part of us, of those of us who attempt to report on and interpret these uh, events uh, for people would be warranted. That having been said, uh, there has never been uh, an an election perhaps since 1983, but probably including 1983 in the UK, where the outcome seemed to be so so predictable and predictably bad for Labour, predictably good for the Conservatives. Uh, I think what you might see is a lowish turnout. Um, You know, it's always risky to read too much into initial reactions and vox pops and uh, online chatter and so forth. But there was a a discernible shrug, I think, um, from an awful lot of people in the UK who were simply fed up with the idea of going to the polls, who didn't see the need for another general election. And I, I, I think that if that, and even I was struck by it, that tone entering into a good deal of the analysis on British television. I was watching Newsnight last night and that was the overwhelming sense of um, of their approach to the story. Now, you know, that may last no more than a couple of days and, you know, uh, the, the electoral issues, the different approaches to Brexit, the different views and visions of society may take over as they normally do during a, during a general election. During quite but, a long campaign as well. Well, it is a long campaign. We, uh, Parliament is not going to be assuming that Theresa May wins the vote today. Parliament won't be dissolved until I think the 2nd of May, certainly early uh, May, le- leaving a, what, a 25-day uh, campaign or a campaign of just or rather just over a month so um, so, but effectively the campaign is on as of now and that is a long campaign it's 50 days and a long campaign is not what you want when you are the front runner as mm-hmm. Theresa May unequivocally is and that having been said She's the front runner for several very good reasons. The most recent poll uh, in the UK had her 21 or 22 points uh, ahead of Labour. Mary is right. The threat for Labour looks utterly insurmountable. We may be looking at the destruction of Labour as, for now at least, the principal party, the principal alternative to the Conservatives in the UK. And let's dig into that just after we take this break. You're listening to The Irish Times. You're joking. Not another one? Oh, for God's sake, I can't honestly, I can't stand this. There's too much politics going on at the moment. Why does she need to do it? And there's a British voter reacting with typical enthusiasm to the prospect of the general election, which is due to take place in early June. Um, Mary Minahan, 
Pat was talking before the break about this this prospect of exhaustion. You know, we were all very excited by this stuff because we're that's the kind of people that we are. Yeah. But but there is a possibility. I mean, last year Brexit saw a significantly uh, higher turnout in terms of the vote. It did energise voters on both sides of, sides of the debate. Might not be the case this time. Well, think how people in Northern Ireland feel. I mean, I'm sure we'll get to that. But, uh, you know, they've had uh, 2015 House of Commons or Westminster, I should say, election. They've had two assembly elections in rapid su- succession, you know. So think how they're feeling about going to the polls again. But, yeah, I think that the Pat, that po- the point that Pat made about the media is key. Media in Britain and indeed here have to make a really concerted effort this time to listen, listen, listen to what people are saying outside the Westminster bubble, because that's, I think, the mistake that that was made before. Uh, certainly for us looking on, it, it's certainly been striking, like yourself, Pat, I watched uh, Newsnight last night and how peripheral we are to Conducted the, the greater part of my research yeah. for this morning, <laughs> symposium. As always. <laughs> but how peripheral, uh, you know, Ireland, Northern Ireland even is to the concerns of uh, not only the British politics politicians, but to British media, uh, that naturally is very, very worrying for us. Uh, I think, you know, as we're probably going to get to that. But Yeah, we will be discussing the, the, the State of the Union uh, a little bit more. I do want to bring in Professor Tim Bale. Tim is one of the most acute analysts of contemporary British politics. And uh, to be fair, Tim, you are one of the people who were saying this is the right thing to do or this is the thing that Theresa May might do when everybody else was saying not a chance. Yeah, I mean, I think when you think about the uh, lead that she's built up in the polls and when you think about the relatively small majority she's got in the House of Commons if you put those two things together I think that equals early elections and I think the only reason uh, that we were put off the scent really was a her suggesting that that wasn't going to happen and b the fixed term parliament act which made people think that you know it was easier constitutionally uh, maybe even more proper constitutionally to to go the full five years um, but she's um, going to prove today I think that the fixed term parliament act was always a bit of a gimmick it was always a lock that could be unpicked quite easily if you had the political will to do it um, so you know it just makes sense I think for Theresa May and of course there's that question of the so-called personal mandate you know she's an unelected prime minister and I think most politicians feel that they've got more legitimacy uh, if they've got into number 10 um, you know through their own efforts rather than simply um, because they've been put there by their colleagues without the electorate having a say and there, there's a there is a fairly long tradition certainly since the Second World War of of prime ministers who, who became prime ministers without winning a general election going fairly fairly quickly to the country, isn't there? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, uh, Anthony Eden stepped into Winston Churchill's shoes in 1955 and he called an election then. Um, you could see it after um, Macmillan took over from uh, Eden, actually, after the Suez debacle uh, in, in the late 50s. John Major waited a, uh, a little bit longer um, until he felt he was ready to go um, to the country after um, stepping in to replace Margaret Thatcher. And, and very often, I mean, in all three cases, uh, it's worked for them. Um, Major, you know, pulled off a, a victory that no one thought was possible a couple of years before, and the other two ended up increasing the Conservatives' majority. So that bodes well, really, for Theresa May. Uh, and there was the example of Gordon Brown, 
who didn't do that, who bottled it famously uh, on general and uh, on calling a general election after he took over from Tony Blair, and uh, and we all know what happened subsequently to that. Yeah, I mean, you point out that very fact actually, uh, Tim, in a, in a piece for the BBC yesterday, and I wondered, I wonder, is Gore, was Gordon Brown? He's the most recent cautionary tale. I wonder did that influence her decision in any way? Um, I think it probably did in as much as she was very, very careful not to allow any speculation to build up about an early election. And indeed, you know, she threw people off the scent about it and allowed her spokesman to do so uh, for months. Uh, I think probably that was his biggest mistake, whether he, you know, he he might have gone uh, a few months later had he not allowed the speculation to build up and done so successfully, I think is something we'll never know. Now, Tim, I mean, this is a politics podcast. It focuses mostly on Irish politics, but it casts its net a little wider at times. But we are, you know, looking at this obviously through green tinted glasses um, to some extent. And in fact, Two of our key analysts in this morning's Irish Times, uh, Dennis Staunton, our London editor and our business editor, uh, Cliff Taylor, they both um, look look on this eventuality as, as, as probably leading, they think, to a greater likelihood of a softer Brexit being negotiated in the, in the long term. Do you do you agree or disagree with that? I tend to think they're right in that, actually. I mean, it slightly depends on the new bunch of MPs uh, who are likely to come in on the back of a big Conservative victory. Um, Some of them will be pretty Eurosceptic, of course. Um, But the thing is, uh, most of them will feel uh, personal... Uh, debt of loyalty to Theresa May, uh, at least uh, while they've still got some hope of uh, eventually advancing in the Conservative Party. So she's probably got two years worth of loyalty out of those people. Uh, And that means uh, she's got, I think, more of a a cushion and insurance policy against some of the kind of uh, hard Eurosceptics, the kind of ultras, the headbangers, as they're sometimes called, uh, who over the last few months anyway, she's had to talk tough to uh, in order to persuade them that she is uh, one of them. I, I, I spoke on this point to some people in Irish government circles uh, yesterday and um, th- that was very much their thinking that it strengthens uh, Theresa May's hand and therefore it is a good thing for Ireland because it will enable her, her to make the sort of compromises which will be inevitable in the negotiations. I think they're probably right but I'd add one cautionary note that it is built on the assumption that 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 will be her reaction to the realities of the negotiation. It's built on the assumption that she will want a softer Brexit because the negotiations will make it clear that that is what is both in Britain, uh, Britain's and in uh, in the EU's interests, and that will serve uh, that will serve Ireland's interests. But uh, the grounds for that assumption albeit that I, I think it's probably right. The grounds for that assumption, it seems to me, are a little bit shaky. It's built as much on aspiration as it is on analysis, raises, partly because we very little to go And that raises, on. Mary, the crucial question of Theresa May herself. And yeah. who is Theresa May? What does she actually believe? And what are her political objectives? Yeah, well, it strikes me that Theresa May might emerge as one of those politicians who in some ways transcends their own parties. There, I mean, we've got opinion polls showing us that Labour voters actually prefer her to Corbyn as 
p.m., which is pretty incredible. And um, I think, you know, she has projected certainly an image of extreme confidence. Um, She's confident enough yesterday to, in fact, name check the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, which is really a a very, very unusual thing to do. So, uh, you know, I think uh, if the media in Britain is listening very, very carefully to what people are saying in the various uh, heartlands outside Westminster, they may um, they may tune in to the development that uh, people who have never traditionally even dreamed of going near the Conservative Party do seem to admire Theresa May and may in fact uh, plump for her over uh, the party that they may have traditionally opted for. Tim, Theresa May, what, what, what do you make of that and what, what Mary is saying? I, I, I find it hard to get a grasp on As we know, she was a, a, a reluctant Remainer, I think, or, or something of that sort. Where does she stand now in the, in the, kind of in the span of the Tory party from, from hard Brexit to soft Brexit, given that everybody's a Brexiteer now? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the fact that she, on balance, decided that it was better to remain in the EU is significant. I mean, I don't think she did that simply because she wanted to keep in David Cameron's um, good books. She was probably unsackable uh, anyway, so I don't think that consideration came in. I think it was on the balance of the evidence as far as she was concerned. Um, having said that, she is, some people would say, absolutely obsessed with the immigration uh, target and the idea that somehow the Conservatives can regain control of uh, borders sufficient to actually reduce immigration uh, to the tens of thousands. Uh, and that, I think, is the key to um, understanding why we won't, in the end, have a softer Brexit as some people would like. Um, however, there is a difference between the, 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 the hard Brexit, which says, you know, absolutely no deal is better than a bad deal, uh, and the hard Brexit that says, well, we can't be a member of the single market because you know, we, we can't allow freedom of movement. Um, she, I think, is, is on the, the, the latter side of the hard Brexit argument. I don't think we then, under Theresa May, going to get a s- soft Brexit. But as uh, you've already said, you guys, I think we're going to get a slightly softer <laughs> Brexit than we might otherwise have had. In other words, I think we're likely to get a deal at least, rather than um, the UK walking away and, and going for some sort of WTO uh, solution. I think that's quite important. And a crucial point for Ireland, I think, there's no question, I think, of the UK remaining in the um, in, in the single market um, for the reasons that Tim has outlined. But uh, it, she has also indicated, though not 100% definitively, she has indicated that it, it's, it's almost certain because Britain wants to negotiate its own trade deals with the rest of the world that uh, the UK will exit the, um, uh, the customs union. I think what is crucial for Ireland, particularly for the question of the future of the border, is uh, what is the UK's relationship with the customs union? Will it simply be a, a free trade Agreement? Will it be a zero tariff free trade agreement? Will it be some sort of external, so external membership of the free uh, of the uh, of the customs union? And that is, I think, where the game is for Ireland, largely, certainly in relation to the border. And I think, you know, any development or any str- strengthening of Theresa May's hand that enables the 
her to soften that particular aspect of Brexit. Whatever about the myriad uh, other aspects of Brexit will be to Ireland's advantage. And I think that that likelihood is perhaps increased if she has a, a big majority, as we all expect. And the, the other thing about, about Theresa May, Tim, is that she is blessed in her enemies. I mean, the, the state of the Labour Party, the UK Labour Party, the once great UK Labour Party, is, is something to behold. And she's really, barring some <coughs> miraculous turnaround, going to inflict one of the most crushing electoral defeats in Labour's history on it, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, long term, if Labour lose seats at this election, that will be about five elections in which it's lost seats over time. And we could be facing a situation where Labour drop well below 200 seats. Um, now, that obviously is important for the Labour Party at this election, but it's also important at the next election. <laughs> it seems funny to think of that. But if uh, a party loses one election very, very badly in the UK, it's very unusual for them to be able to come back um, at the election after that. So we're really talking about a Labour Party that's already been out of power for seven years and is probably going to be out of power for at least another 10 years. Um, now, so this is a 1983 moment for the Labour Party. Oh, I, I think I think it probably is, and it could be even worse. I mean, at least at the 1983 and the 1987 elections, Labour kept uh, ahead of the Liberal Democrats. Now, I think that is still likely, but it is not totally impossible if things go very, very badly for Jeremy Corbyn, and he he is someone who the public simply do not warm to. It is possible that the Liberal Democrats could challenge the Labour Party for second place in terms of vote share. That almost happened in 83 and 87. It didn't happen and Labour was able to recover. Um, if you remember, we've got a set of local elections coming up before the general election. That is going to put a lot of wind in the sails of the Liberal Democrats. There are going to be an awful lot of Labour supporters who are disappointed with Jeremy Corbyn over his ambivalent attitude to Brexit, who might shift over to the, the Liberal Democrats. I still don't think that is uh, likely. In other words, I still think that Labour will finish ahead of the Liberal Democrats in vote share. But it is not impossible that we could see the Liberal Democrats overtake the Labour Party in terms of vote share. In seats, that's not going to happen because Labour has so many safe seats. Uh, but, the, you know, there is a real risk there. And, and as you say, I mean, the, the biggest transfer of votes uh, and seats anyway will be from Labour to the Conservatives. And the Conservatives could emerge from this election with an overall majority of, you know, 50, 60. And some people are even saying it could go into three figures. It's it's very interesting what Tim is saying there about Labour and I think it is important to remember in the light of, of recent events which we spoke about at the top of the podcast that you know just because a political party has been central to politics in our lifetime doesn't necessarily mean it's always going to be like that and I suppose the advice to Labour at the minute would be you know don't panic but on the other hand, sometimes oh, no, panic no, no. is panic, the think. only appropriate response. <laughs> and, you know, I saw someone tweeting yesterday that no one in my tightly controlled left-leaning social media bubble is going to vote Tory. You know, like yeah. I think it's just very important that we're we're looking outside our own neat little world. Uh, Tim, finally yeah. on that, I mean, I was looking at some very interesting polling demographics uh, yesterday, which I'm sure you've seen as well, which looked at the kind of the, the party support across uh, age lines and across class lines. And one of the things that really struck me was that traditional working class support for Labour had just really collapsed, that the Labour, that the Tory lead among working class voters uh, was nearly as high as it was among the population at large. And obviously then you had UKIP coming up on the on the right as well, which was affecting mm. those numbers. I mean, that's is that kind of at the core of Labour's problem or is it more to do with their own internal wrangling? 
Well, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn and the internal wrangling helps, but you're right to have identified a long-term problem that Labour has, and that, in some ways, is to do both with the kind of shrinking of the working class itself. So even if the working class were still voting Labour, that wouldn't do Labour as much good as it used to. But it's also to do with the fact that it is losing uh, working class support, primarily, I think, because of the rise of more cultural issues, the most obvious one being immigration and, to some extent, the EU as well. And what has happened is that Labour doesn't really reflect the views on immigration of most of its, um, you know, working class so-called core constituency. And and, and as um, voters have woken up to that fact, they've moved either to the Conservatives or to uh, or to UKIP. And that has, you know, uh, impacted in a very major way on, on Labour's working class support. Uh, and it has to be said, the other problem for Labour is that while it attracts middle class support, at the moment that middle class support um, seems to be confined to the public sector, which of course has suffered under austerity. They don't seem to have got that kind of aspirational middle class support that Tony Blair was so um, brilliant at tapping into. Tim, we shall leave it there. Thanks very much indeed for sharing your insights today. I suppose perhaps what's at the core of this actually is the, the problems we were just discussing there with Tim about the problems facing the Labour Party, which seem intractable. I find it very difficult to see any way out of this uh, for Labour. I mean, we talked about the 1983 general election there, but the 1983-1987 general elections uh, in the UK for Labour, while there were heavy defeats, Labour remained the alternative to the Tories. I'm not sure that that will be the case uh, after this uh, election. And I I think Labour is stuck in in a vice electorally in regard to the two core parts of its constituency. Um for its traditional working class base, cultural issues such as but not limited to immigration are repulsing its uh, voters. And for its middle class supporters in London, the south of England and, uh, and, and, and so forth, the economic issues that, uh, that, that mm, the economic stance of Corbyn's labour is repulsive. So you these two parts of its vital core vote, which is being repulsed for different reasons. And of reasons. course, this is, this is not peculiar just no. to UK Labour. In fact, Mary, it's peculiar to pretty much every social democratic party, including the Irish Labour Party Absolutely, across Europe. Yeah. Certainly the immigra- immigration isn't the, isn't sure. the hot button issue it is here. But the, the, under, the undercurrents, the changing society, uh, driving different kinds of beliefs and different kinds of voting patterns are, yeah. are there. Right? Absolutely. I mean, I, I know I've been out of Leinster House for a while, so I'm a, a little bit behind here. But certainly visually, when you're sitting in Leinster House and, and you just see Brendan Howland often sitting there on his own, you realise what has happened to the Labour Party. I suppose, in a sense, the the officer class, if you like, have become more and more removed from the traditional vote, as Tim was pointing out there. And I think he was absolutely right, actually, to to raise the immigration card a number of times in his in his contributions. I think it's probably something that we we cringe about going near when we discuss politics, but. It, it's 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 really it's a post fact thing, isn't it? Whether whether or not the numbers tell you that there are floods of immigrants coming to British shores, people now seem to believe that. So, and I think Theresa May tapped into that very early on in her very in her first major speech when she uh, tried to, I suppose, bond with working class people and say that their you know claims about and their concerns about immigration had been dismissed as parochial. So she very much reached out to them uh, initially. 
Italy and Tim also talked about, you know, middle class aspirations, but also it has to be borne in mind that working class people are aspirational too. I mean, it should go without saying, but that is something that I think the modern British Labour Party has, well, it's so divided, it's very hard to describe it. But certainly at at the leadership level, the modern British Labour Party has has just failed to recognise that completely. Right. Uh, We're going to take a break and after that we're going to be discussing the state of two unions, uh, the United Kingdom and the European Union. And you're welcome back to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times with me in studio, Pat Leahy and Mary Minahan. Uh, the state of the union is a phrase that can be applied, Mary, to in, in, in many different contexts at the moment. Uh, there's the United Kingdom, there's the European Union, there's a certain push going on in Northern Ireland to discuss the prospect of a united Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said previously, None of this really seems, apart from the European Union one, seems to have had much impact on Theresa May's decision yesterday. I, I don't think so. I mean, what are what are Ireland's concerns in all this? It's the border, it's the peace process, it's trade deals and it's common travel. And I, I heard very little mention of any of those things yesterday. It just doesn't seem to factor at all. Obviously, we all hope that those discussions are going on behind the scenes. And I, I just on a lighter note, I, I was told yesterday uh, by someone in government circles that Enda Kenny was uh, putting it about that he was too busy to step down because of Brexit but Theresa May who's probably one of the busiest women in the world had was able to schedule or to stage a, a new election three years ahead of schedule but that's just a, just an aside but uh, you know certainly uh, as I said earlier the people in Northern Ireland will be going to the polls once again I talk about election fatigue setting in there um, obviously the last time round the, the DUP came back in the Westminster elections with eight seats in Sinn Féin, four. Uh, goes without saying, those are the, the two big uh, the two big parties that are battling up there. Ulster Unionist to SDLP held on to three uh, against expectations and uh, the independent Unionist and Lady uh, Sylvia Herman came back with one. So, I mean, to be blunt and to break it down, you're looking at 11 Unionists and seven Nationalists up there if you divvy up the 18 uh, House of Commons seats. Look, I mean, obviously, uh, elections cost money and uh, surely even for a a party with such healthy coffers as as Sinn Féin, uh, you you would imagine the money would be dwindling a bit at this stage for for electoral spending. Not to mention the enormous uh, energy and effort and, you know, sometimes... And they did put a huge effort into Sinn Féin in particular into the Assembly elections, didn't they? Yes, they Mm. absolutely did. Now, Sinn Féin obviously will say they they relish the opportunity, uh, you know, to have another election. And I think in some senses they probably do because they realise that the D UP, uh, you know, is in a weakened position, and they would very much hope uh, hope to capitalise on that. But you know, really. Uh They've, they've so a is lot it a classic sectarian headcount in Northern Ireland again? They're, they're looking to move from 11-7 to 9-9 win seats uh, in people, places like North Belfast and Fermanagh. I, I, I don't like that that sectarian headcount phrase. I understand why people use it, but, it, well, I think what will have to come up now, I suppose, is, is talk about pacts. Uh, you know, the SDLP has traditionally shied away from that, but, uh, you know, they will have to probably look at this. There'll, be, there'll certainly be discussions going on anyway between Sinn Féin and the SDLP and between the DUP and and the UUP, but you know things got so fractious and so bitter at the last uh, election that I, I just wonder how much success they would have that. But uh, and I suppose, I suppose Patrick, the real will... politic of this is that there will be no political movement in Northern Ireland for the foreseeable future. I was listening to Michelle O'Neill on RTE this morning and to Sammy Wilson of the DUP, and what 
I heard them say in their respective coded language was that it's direct rule until the autumn at least. Seems very unlikely. I think there are two, um, uh, albeit that the uh, Taoiseach uh, in his phone call to uh, Theresa May yesterday um, explicitly advised the British government against the reimposition of direct rule, uh, but without uh, agreement between the northern parties um, before Parliament is dissolved, it one would wonder what the uh, what the alternative is. I think there's two um, chief implications or two chief consequences from the calling of the election yesterday for the North. The first is uh, that Mrs May will probably come back with a much larger majority so that weakens the unionist hand at Westminster. Mrs May currently has a wafer-thin majority. There's 11 unionist seats there. That gives them sway that they will not have uh, if she has a 100-seat majority or a 50-seat majority, whatever it is. And the second consequence, I think, is that it makes um, the reinstitution of the power-sharing executive of most unlikely if they if the parties have been unable to reach an agreement um, uh, in the relative calm that we've had for the last number of weeks it seems most unlikely that they would be able to reach it during the tumult of a general election campaign. I, I think what it signifies as well which is where you started from is the extent to which the North is no longer a priority we've talked about this in this studio before, the extent to which the North is simply not a priority for uh, for the British government. That has been an emerging trend uh, for the last number of years. It has, I think, accelerated uh, under uh, under Mrs May. And privately, UK government officials would tend to uh, would tend to acknowledge. I that. want to bring in a, a, another constituent part of the uh, of the United Kingdom. Peter Gagan has a piece in today's Irish Times about what this means for Scottish politics. Peter, you write about, uh, and I quote. You say a key challenge for the nationalists, the Scottish nationalists, is voter fatigue, which is something we've referred to already in relation to Northern Ireland, because there's been an awful lot of voting to be done in Scotland over the last couple of years, hasn't there? There has indeed. Ever since the referendum in September 2014, Scotland has basically been on political war footing. Even most of the political parties in Scotland are already gearing up for big elections, actually, which are going to happen in about two weeks' time, and May the 4th is council elections, which normally aren't that big a deal in Scotland, but this time around they're huge because it's seen as a proxy for independence. So the big question I'm sitting talking here from Glasgow is, will the SNP take Glasgow, which has been Labour territory for almost all of the last 60 years, will they take most of the councils in the west of Scotland. So actually in Scotland, it's this is actually coming on top of a kind of a long series of elections, most of which have been fought along the lines of unionism versus nationalism. And this election is almost certainly going to follow very similar patterns. We're going to see a lot more conversations about independence than we are Brexit, almost certainly. Now, the last UK parliamentary election delivered an extraordinary result. I mean, it's been talking about the vagaries of, of the first past the post system in the UK. It delivered, you know, a, a, such a stunning result for the SNP that, I mean, they can't do any better than that, can they? No, it was a remarkable performance. They won 56 out of the 59 seats in Scotland. They, they went in with six seats. Uh, Labour lost 40 of the 41 seats they held. So this was a huge, huge swing. The SNP polled just under 50% of the vote. But in some areas, they polled much higher than that. They, they basically broke the, the fabled... Uh, 
BBC swingometer in some of the constituencies because the swing was just that big. I guess the challenge for the SNP is to actually is to, is to hold those seats. The three seats they don't hold, one of those might fall, one or two, but there are also possibilities they could lose seats in other places. There's been some internal problems as well with the SNP Westminster group. Two of the MPs who were elected in May 2015 have been kind of ex, ex, uh, excommunicated from the group and are sitting as independents for various financial uh, issues. But the reality is if you look at the opinion polls, um, as you say, the vagaries of the first-past-the-post system, if the SNP poll anything like they did in the Holyrood elections, in the Vault elections last uh, last May, where they got about 45 to 47% on the various list systems, um, they will return with an overwhelming majority of the seats again. And the question really will be how this is framed, I think, because uh, for, for nationalism, they want to frame this as, as a big victory, because they will say, if they say, say they win 85, 90% of the seats in Scotland, that will be saying, look, this is a big mandate again for a second referendum on independence. For unionism, if there's a loss of seats for the SNP, they will probably try and say, look, this is this shows that the SNP are, are losing ground because they've lost seats here and there. But the reality is, uh, it's going to be, uh, we're almost certainly looking at uh, another big SNP result. The question is, what does that look like? And what does the campaign look like? And, and also, what does it mean for the SNP's longer term project? And, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's seeking to have another referendum that's been rejected by Theresa May. What happens in Scottish politics over the course of the next couple of years while the Brexit negotiations are going on? Well, that's going to be very interesting because Theresa May only a few weeks ago said that uh, there couldn't be, there shouldn't be a second referendum on Scottish independence until uh, the Brexit deal had bedded in. Until she was, she spoke around 2022. Until there was a really clear sense of what Brexit meant. And one of the reasons she gave was because another election in Scotland, another referendum, would be destabilising, and that there was no mandate for this. Now, a few weeks later, Theresa May has turned around and said, actually, I, I need a mandate for Brexit, and an election is a good thing to have now. This is going to make it very difficult for Theresa May after June the 8th to turn around and say to the Scottish nationalists they can't have another referendum. Just last month, the Scottish Parliament, because there is a pro-independence majority in the Scottish Parliament, the Scottish Parliament uh, voted to demand the, the powers to hold a second referendum. And so you can see how these two sides are going to become increasingly, are, are moving towards each other with increasing speed. And the question, I think, is going to, is going to arise for Theresa May and for Scottish nationalism is, well, how are you going to, how can you keep these, uh, kind of keep a second referendum off the table on the back of a general yeah, election? Yeah, I, I want to bring in um, Pat here. Pat, I, I hear that, but I can also quite imagine a situation, just looking at Theresa May's behaviour over the last 24 hours, where she just says, no, you're not having it. I am the Prime Minister. Um, there is no constitutional crisis. Sovereignty rests with Parliament and there will be no referendum. End of. Go away. Stop bothering me. Uh that is, of course, what she said about general election as well, only to uh, change her mind rather abruptly yesterday. I think the momentum towards a second referendum is probably irresistible. I think the question is the timing of the second referendum. I'm not sure that the SNP really wants it immediately. Presumably, it wants to give itself the best possible chance of winning this, uh, winning the next referendum, because it's hard to imagine that if the next referendum was lost, that they could go for a third referendum. So, and bear in mind that, you know, after, uh, after it became the, uh, the party 
uh, after it became the first party in Scotland, after it dominated the, um, after it came to dominate their uh, their parliamentary system or the parliamentary elections uh, in in Scotland, the SNP still lost the subsequent sure. referendum. So a vote and that was a referendum on two nations, independent nations, which would remain within the EU. So it's it's a somewhat different and perhaps scarier yeah, no, prospect the, now. There's no there's no doubt that the context will be different in the next referendum. I think what the uh, SNP will want to do is prepare the ground carefully such that that context offers them the it, to the extent that they can control it offers them the uh, the optimum chance of success but I think that the, 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 as I say the second referendum is a question of when not if Peter, you've written as well about politics and identity in Northern Ireland as well as in Scotland. When we hear these kind of, we hear these phrases about the the breakup of the union and and those kinds of things. How much relationship is there, or how much impact does one have on the other? The the, the quite different political tensions in Northern Ireland from those in Scotland. I think if you go back to twenty fourteen for the first Scottish referendum, it was very interesting. There was no attempt in Scotland at all to draw any parallels with Northern Ireland. And that's long been a case for the Scottish National Party. They never want to be seen to be very close, particularly to Sinn Féin, but to, Scot- to Irish nationalism at all. That's seen as quite a toxic thing, seen as something that's rooted in kind of atavistic ethnic a- issues. The SNP, especially laterally, has always wanted to see itself as culturally, uh, as a cultural nationalist movement, uh, as very different. But that, I think, has changed in the wake of Brexit. I think where these two things were seen as very, very separate, especially in a Scottish mind, and probably in an ordinary Irish mind too, these t- quite different contexts. I think Brexit has definitely changed uh, this this uh, kind of suggestion. I think it's kind of added to this idea that across what you might what sometimes called the Celtic fringe, there is a kind of there is some sort of commonality, and not just I think a commonality about uh, Westminster as some sort of the enemy, but also some sort of common common issues around say the, not say the European Union relationships with. Uh, across the islands, relationships with the Republic of Ireland, uh, relationships between within within the nation states themselves, and I think what you're going to this is probably something that's going to increase. I think in the coming years, because uh, for both Scottish nationalists and Irish nationalists, Brexit has I do think it has changed the terms of engagement. I think it's given it's given nationalism uh, nationalist movements in the United Kingdom, which previously had been seen from a kind of a central position, has been very reactionary, has been kind of caricatured as something that was kind of quite uh, quite old fashioned. It's given them a chance to kind of depict themselves more as progressive. And this has been the this has been the kind of tenor of Irish uh, of Sinn Fein campaigns, of SLP campaigns, and of SNP campaigns internally, but they don't need to have been seen like this externally. So more and more externally, whether you're looking at from Brussels or Dublin, or even for some people from London, there is a sense in which these, what the demands that are coming from uh, Belfast and Edinburgh from nationalists, I think are definitely seen more sympathetically and are listened to more. And I think it'll be interesting to see as we move towards a second referendum in Scotland, I would, I would agree with Pat. We're not. We're. This is a lot of this is about framing. Um, a lot of this is about what does the second referendum look like? What what ground will be fought on? Not when it's going to happen now. But as we move towards a second referendum, and as increasingly the polit- politics of Scotland and Northern Ireland are so completely divorced in terms of electoral politics from the rest of the UK, the reality is whatever the results are in Scotland and Northern Ireland on June the eighth. 
the likelihood is you might get max three or four Conservative MPs in Scotland, one or two Labour Party MPs in Scotland. You will have no representation for the Labour Party or the Conservatives in Northern Ireland, whereas England and Wales will have a very large Conservative and Labour uh, representation. So the look of these parties, the look of Scotland and Northern Ireland politically is increasingly different from England and Wales. And I, and I, and I wonder... Sorry, Peter, I just want to bring Mary in on this because I can see her chomping at the bit there. And I wonder, I mean, in terms of what he's describing there about the, sort of the nature of cultural, uh, of nationalism, cultural nationalism in Scotland, uh, and perhaps looking towards the example of Irish nationalism, the, the, the other side of that, of course, is that, um, is that the uh, Ulster Unionist cultural identity is very, very closely aligned with a traditional notion of what Scottish identity might be. Yes, and I think probably they feel that it's being increasingly undermined by what's happening because these islands, as we sometimes sometimes call them, are in such a state of flux. I think there's been a cultural and political awakening uh, among people who've never voted before, who've always felt so completely disconnected from the political process, but are now, I think, just uh, overwhelmed and feeling kind of sick of being on the peripheral of, uh, on the periphery of Westminster thinking. So you have ideas like you know, Scottish nationalism that would have previously been considered slightly wacky and out there becoming much more mainstream and much less strong. But there is a, a movement in Wales and, you know, even in Cornwall and places like that. Uh, but it shows, you know, how quickly what's happened in Scotland can show, you, you know, the old thing of there's decades where nothing happens and there's years where everything happens. Uh, you know, obviously, this campaign had been bubbling away in the background, but how quickly a political situation can change and I suppose future historians of that phrase makes sense, will we'll look back on these days as the death throes of the United Kingdom. But there's also what's extraordinary is that the extent to which this has not been realised or appreciated, or if it has been, the extent to which it has been discarded by the Conservative Westminster establishment, who could have, in the wake of the uh, of the Brexit vote, taken into account the vote in Scotland, the vote in Northern Ireland, and gone for uh, you know membership of the single market, at least membership of the customs union, but instead the uh, the, the the votes and the wishes of the Celtic fringe seemed to matter yeah. not at all to, uh, in, in, to indeed and, and, and finally Peter I suppose it is that very English majoritarianism which is which is going to almost certainly going to provide a spur to nationalist impulses in the, in, in the Celtic fringe as you call it Oh yeah, without, I think without a question. I think, and the return of this majoritarianism, and I think it it also feeds into if you look, it, personalities matter in politics. And David Cameron, if you look at David Cameron, the man who gave the first referendum, he had quite a patrician way about him, and he came he, he came to Scotland. He wasn't well loved in Scotland, but he did seem to have some feel for Scotland, for Scots, and some kind of implicit uh, kind of relationship with Scotland. Well, his name was Cameron, after all. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. and his a uh, bit his, of grouse his shooting. His father-in-law owns the island of Jura as well, which always helps. Uh, but uh, Theresa May doesn't seem to have any of this. Theresa May is the Anglican daughter from the south of England. And when she comes to Scotland, she's been to Scotland a couple of times. She gave a speech at the Tory party conference uh, on the same day here in Glasgow, on the same day as actually the Northern Ireland uh, uh, 
the talks broke down in Northern Ireland. She talked about, you know, bringing power back to Westminster and the importance of the centre, which it were, it displays a really thin ear for the reality of Scotland at the moment. You know, Scotland is still a very febrile place. And, and I think what Mary was talking about, years where nothing happens, it has been remarkable. The political change in Scotland over the last, particularly over the last three years, has been incredible. The years 2013, 2014 changed the landscape of Scottish politics completely. And the other thing that's worth mentioning as well about the future of the union is in 2014 when the referendum happened in Scotland, the Labour Party had 41 MPs. There was still some hope or expectation that Ed Miliband, sounds ridiculous now, could win the general election. Now we're looking at a general election where the Labour Party are almost certainly going to be decimated. There's very little prospect of a Labour government anytime soon. And the old argument, which was what sustained, uh, what led to a Scottish Parliament in the first place, was that Scotland didn't get who it voted for, that uh, it, it got Thatcher when it never voted for Thatcher. That's going to recur again. And that kind of majoritarianism added to this sense where Scotland and Northern Ireland aren't getting governments that they vote for. It's hard not to see how that supercharges this process as we, at, at such a such a, a, kind of a critical moment for the United Kingdom as it leaves uh, the United, European Union. Indeed, may you live in interesting times. Peter, thanks very much indeed for joining us today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our guests, Pat Leahy, Mary Minahan, Tim Bale and Peter Gagan. Uh, Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. Remember that you can find us on irishtimes.com slash podcasts or you can subscribe via iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. And if you're already a subscriber, as always, we would be extremely grateful if you'd take a moment to share or recommend the podcast as it helps to get it out to a broader audience. Remember also that you can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 